Uh, this uh, past month, I began a, a study with a couple of guys walking through the gospel of Mark. And uh, early on, you encounter a character by the name of John the Baptist. And, and John the Baptist is just a very unique character in Scripture. And uh, after just having that study and, and knowing that I ha had the opportunity to preach this morning, I'd like to do things a little bit different in regards to our text. Uh, what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at the life of John the Baptist, kind of a biographical sketch of his life, because there are characteristics of this man that I think second to Christ, no one displays humility as well as John the Baptist. A self-denial consistently, every single time, from the beginning to the end, we see John direct everybody's attention to Christ. So as a believer this morning, that should be our heart's desire. And every instant we're given in this life, every moment we have, we should desire for the attention to be taken off of ourselves and redirected to Christ. When I think of this world, it's just the culture and society we live in, it's so bent towards self-elevation. I mean, everywhere we look, it's about elevating yourself, making a name for yourself, pleasing your desires. But the Christian life is contrary to that. And I think we find an example in John the Baptist. What I'd like to do is look at three things. The man, the ministry, and the model. The man, the ministry, and the model. And we're going to be spending most of our time in the Gospel of Luke. And that's because of the way Luke wrote his Gospel. Luke had the intent of giving the facts, investigating and putting down things in a very clear and precise way. And he gives us a lot of details that some of the other Gospels don't give us on the life of Christ and really on the life of John the Baptist. And we'll begin really in the first part of Luke, uh, in Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, what we're going to see first in the man is we're going to see his parents. And really that makes a difference when you look at an individual. The kind of parents really does shape an individual. Now, there's an extent where that stops, and an individual must take their own uh, ownership of their actions and their ways, but we're going to look at the parents of John the Baptist. John the Baptist's parents were Zechariah and Elizabeth. We learn very quickly that his occupation, Zechariah, he was a priest, and that was his livelihood. That's what he did. He was a priest, a servant to the Lord. His wife, Elizabeth, was also of, uh, from Aaron, so she came from that same family. And uh, their lives were given to the Lord. But we see early on that they have an issue. They have no child. Now, that's a big thing for this time of the, in the world, uh, for this culture especially. A child represented blessings from the Lord. It was a joyful thing. It was a wonderful thing for a couple to have a child. But the other issue is they're advanced in years. Now, this is actually not uncommon to them in regards to Scripture. We know of Abraham 
and Sarah dealt with the same circumstances, both without child, advanced in years and years. We know that Samson's parents were barren. We know that Isaac and Rebekah were barren. We know that, that uh, Samuel's mother, Hannah, was barren. But there's nothing too difficult for the Lord, right? It's true. We need to remember that. There's nothing too difficult for the Lord. And really, I would love to read for you Genesis 18, 11 through 14. I'll read that for us. But it's a, a, an account of even Sarah doubting how this is just a difficult task before the Lord. But let me read for that for you. In verse 11, it reads, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of a woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Did you catch that? Is there anything too hard, too difficult for the Lord? The answer is no. He's never met a challenge. If that's your God today, that's a wonderful truth to stand on. He has never met a challenge. There's never been a force or power too strong for him. This couple would know that very shortly when their son Isaac was born. So Zechariah and Elizabeth found themselves in a very similar place. But that's not what we first learn about this couple. Actually, Luke begins by describing them in verse 6. Let's read that. Verse 6 of chapter 1. He says, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. They were righteous before the Lord, blameless before the Lord respected the word of God, the commandments of God. What a wonderful tag to your name. What a wonderful thing to be put to your place to your name. They were blameless and righteous, which really spoke to their relationship with the Lord. They were servants to God. Though that was his livelihood at home, they were still faithful to the Lord. This is what marked the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And actually, it's very telling as we look at this foretelling of John the Baptist and his birth. It's telling that even in the midst of discouragement, even in the midst of their dreams not being fulfilled, not knowing what was before them, they still served the Lord. That's where we find John, uh, Zechariah. He was a priest. He was serving the Lord. We read later on in the text He's uh, coming to actually a point in his career that would probably have been the climax as a priest. There was over 18,000 priests at this time. It's good to know that they still worship the Lord at this time, revere the Lord, and acted in an honorable way. And they would have certain groups of priests come and they would do it by lot to see who would have the opportunity to go in the holy place. Not the holy of holies, but the holy place. 
place, the place right before. No common individual could do that. They would, as they would offer the burnt offering, they would offer this, this incense, this, these coals, this offering to the Lord as the people and the other priests were outside praying. This would only happen once in his career as a priest. A very important time in his life. Probably taking every bit of it serious, not only because it's only once, but also because of what he's doing. He's offering on the behalf of the people uh, an offering to the Lord. So you can imagine every bit of his mind is on every step, every movement along the way, and then boom, there's an angel. Now we know from other accounts that this is a fearful thing, but I can't imagine it's one thing to be sitting in your home or along the path, but you're in a place that you're already concerned that you might mess things up, all right? And then an angel of the Lord appears before him. Look at verse 12. And rightfully so, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Of course, it's a messenger before the Lord. This is a reoccurring thing. Nothing sweet about this. This is a fearful thing. And then he's put to ease when the angel says, the angel said to him in verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. We don't know much other than what we have here about Zechariah and Elizabeth. If we were to open a door to look into their lives, that door was just cracked a little bit more when we see that they had been praying for a child. What a wonderful place to be when you have a prayer answered. You've been there, faithful Christian. Been lifting up prayers before the Lord, and then you see it. Sometimes we don't even see the answer to our prayers right away, but when we see it, it's so comforting to know that God listens to his people. Your prayer has been answered. God has heard your prayer. What a wonderful thing. It's testimonies like this that remind us how much we need God. How much he is over this. Of course, Zechariah and Elizabeth are not unaware that there's others that have walked through the same uh, tragedy and hurt. I mean, could you imagine as a young couple? So when are you planning to have children? Later on down the road, we'll, we'll be praying that, that, that you would have children. This, this burden, this weightiness of being barren that they had to live with. And the Lord answers the prayer. But just as quick as he heard the words of the Lord through this messenger, just as quickly he began to doubt. Look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you. And to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. He knows now. It just took a moment for him to know for sure. 
This is definitely from the Lord. What a wonderful journey back. What a bittersweet journey back. Excitement about being able to tell his wife something that you're going to want to use a tone just as this. Bust through the door. Honey, it's happening. We're going to have a baby. But there's nothing. Only able to write it and to spend the next several months in this current state. I'm sure that was a lesson for Zechariah to never doubt the word of the Lord. But this time of anticipation was great and sweet. We actually get to the point where, where John is actually born. And it's, it's actually a wonderful uh, 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 passage. And I want to read that and just, just up front. Because of the, the, the structure of our, our sermon this morning, we're going to be reading a lot of scripture here. I want, to, I want you to see with your eyes. I could try to explain most, but I want you to see firsthand of this man. So let's, let's read about this birth in, in chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. Let's read through this. A lot's happened since then. Her cousin Mary has uh, been told by the same angel that she would give birth to a son. The child was, was filled with the Holy Spirit, leaped at that news, and then here comes his birth. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his fathers, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. There's a couple of things here. Don't forget that the hand of the Lord will be with him. What is with this child? First, the name. What's the big deal about the name? Well, first off, from the beginning, we can see God's work in this. He gave the name John. As it was their custom, it would have either been the father or the grandfather that they would have named the uh, male uh, after and so Zechariah, his name was whom Jehovah remembered. Names are significant back then. Isn't that true of him? Whom Jehovah remembered. Not that God forgot about Zechariah or forgets anything, but recalling the prayers of this faithful man and woman. But John, that name means whom Jehovah has graciously given. What a sweet name. Whom Jehovah has graciously given. That's fitting for John. Who was he given to? Well, first he was given to two godly parents who longed to be a father 
and mother who no doubt laid a foundation that elevated the Lord in their lives as servants, as a priest and his wife. What a wonderful gift. I mean, remember, there is nothing too difficult for the Lord. Just pause for a moment. Implement that truth into your life. There is nothing too difficult for the Lord. Whatever circumstance you find yourself in, there is nothing too difficult for the Lord. Whether a family member that you are pleading on his behalf to save and recall, a relationship that's in shambles and you praying for uh, restoration, there is nothing too difficult for the Lord. He was given to Zechariah and Elizabeth. They could attest to that. But secondly, he is given ultimately to his call, and that's the people of Israel, to the Jews. And that's to prepare the people. I purposely left out verses 14 and 17. When the angel told him, you shall have a son, and his name shall be John, in verses 14 on, he says, and you will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready, there we are, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That was his call. God graciously sent John to prepare the people for the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. That was his purpose. That was his calling. He would be the one to till up the soil of the spiritual conditions of the people. And then we're going to look at that here in a moment. But it's so important to note, just off the bat, even before the, the child becomes a man, everything points to the Lord. Everything points to the people. The attention is almost, oh yes, there's a child because there's the miraculous birth. That's not John's doing, that's the Lord's doing. There's a people that needs to be prepared. That's not John's doing. That's the Lord's doing. Everything is directing our attention to the Lord and his working and his name, his glory. That's consistent throughout his life. Let's look at the ministry of John the Baptist. What do we know about his ministry? Well, we know that he's a baptizer. This is all that we, we really, this is what we know most about him. He baptized Jesus, and that's a totally different sermon in itself and trying to unpack that. But in short, he was preparing the people for Christ's ministry and for his work on the cross. Now, this baptism, there's a lot of debate. I think one of the best ways to understand it, though, there is a custom in the Jewish religion that when an individual outside of the faith, a pagan, if you will, wanted to be a Jew, there would be an act of baptism. So this might not have been a new uh, act at all and most likely was not. 
And so really the semblance and what he was trying to show to the people is there is a physical washing and cleansing and purification. What was done externally needed to be done internally. He points to that really quickly. I just have water. The one that's coming, he has the spirit that he'll baptize you with. We know him as the baptizer, but I really want to put before you John the preacher. John was a preacher. He might have only had one sermon, but he preached that one sermon in a very powerful way. John was a preacher. We see uh, in Luke 176-79, through 79, his father, after his birth, praising the Lord, prophesies. He says this of John. He says, in you, child will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. How would he give that knowledge? Through preaching. Through preaching. In Luke chapter 3 verse 3 we read, And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming or preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was a preacher. We kind of forget this about John. Or skip over this about John. Very similar to the Lord Jesus Christ. He started his ministry, we read it either in Mark or Matthew or Luke. Each time as, as John was taken into custody, uh, custody he, what did he do next? He went out and preached. That was his ministry. He did the miracles, but he preached and taught. That was important to the Lord. That is how God gets his message out. That is how hearts are changed and transformed is by preaching, powerful preaching. What did he preach? He preached repentance. And he preached it in a fiery way. Look at verses 7 through 9 in chapter 3. In Luke 3, 7 through 9. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 9. He preached repentance he was not very sweet to his audience you brood of vipers how would you like to be addressed in that way would you please turn with me to Luke chapter 1 you brood of vipers that's one way to get your audience attention John MacArthur said uh, hard words create soft people truth is what he gave them he gave them truth the word of God. He wanted to peel back and show them you have an issue and it's sin. 
Repent. Turn from that. Prepare your heart. In Luke 3.10, didn't read that. How did they respond to it? The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Oh, they were cut to the heart as we read like in Acts and Peter's preaching. Preaching repentance. Preaching the good news. It's what he was preaching, repentance. Turn from your sins. And that is still what we need today. There are far too many pulpits, far too many churches that have taken their eyes off the means by which God sets out to change hearts. And that is preaching the word of God, preaching repentance. Sin is not a small issue. Sin recalls the fact that we have a holy God. Sin recalls, uh, repentance recalls the fact that we We must do something with this sin. Something must be done. And that is accomplished through Jesus Christ. It's the message that we have today. It's the message that Jesus Christ had. He went out, repent, and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. He was a preacher and he preached repentance. But he didn't start, stop there. He preached against immorality. He was unashamed. It didn't matter who you were. He was calling out the sin. It didn't matter what you could do to him. But he preached the word and truth. In chapter 3 verse 18 through 20. This is what would take his life eventually. 18 through 20. So with many other exhortations. He preached good news to the people. The gospel. But here Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked, that he locked up John in prison. He was not ashamed of preaching against immorality. In a day and age where immorality is celebrated, where things are turned upside down and what is evil is called good and what is good is called evil. It's the pulpit by which evil is spoken and called out. When immorality is running rampant, the word of God comes in direct conflict with it. And it must be called out. You as a believer, you might not be called to a pulpit, but you've been called to stand up for truth. We shouldn't celebrate immorality, but call it what it is, sin, rebellion against God. Ultimately, though, John the Baptist, he preached Christ. Our text that Miss Amy read for us came from John 1, 29-34. I'll just read a couple of the first few verses of that. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He preached Christ. And that was consistent in every way. There in Luke, and you'll read the same account in Matthew and Mark, people begin to come to him. Even prior to this in John, they say, Why are you baptizing? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? 
at a point where he could have deviated, he didn't. He stayed true to his calling. He said, I am not the Christ, but he's coming. He's more worthier than I, and he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. He preached Christ. That's still the message today. We have nothing else other than Christ. The gimmicks, we don't need that. We need Christ preached. Far too many pulpits have been given to gimmicks, have been given to self-help, refocusing the whole attention of a worship service and redirecting it towards the audience instead of the one that it should be directed to, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. He preached Christ. He was faithful to that. His ministry was marked by constantly redirecting people from him to others. That's difficult. That's difficult when people are coming to you. The crowds are coming to you. They're in awe of what you're saying. They're in awe about what you're doing. They say, is it you? Instead, he says, don't look at me. Look to Christ. Look to the one that's coming. Everything about him, the weird clothing, the, the weird diet. He, he, he's the last of the Old Testament prophets. Kind of have the image of Elijah with his, his camel and the leather belt. He, he's, he's pushing it in front of the religious leader. I'm not in this, this elaborate garb. I'm just a man out here preaching Christ. That's all that he had. That was his message. Tilling the soil of the heart of the people of Israel, hoping that they would listen once Christ came. That was his ministry. And he did it faithfully. Lastly, the model. The model. We've looked at the man. We've seen the ministry. The model. And really, all in application, but still looking at the man. He wanted to magnify Christ. Behold the Lamb of God. It's fascinating. Jesus' first disciples that he called, Andrew and Peter and James and John. Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. There he is. That's the one I was talking about. Leaving his teaching and going to the Christ. Willing to have others go to the one that they truly wanted him to go to, which is Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing. He's a model for us. He is just a man, though. And just like you and me, when things are difficult and hard, doubts begin to arise in our hearts and minds. Fears. Is it really worth it? Am I living for the right thing right now? As culture begins to press in and we kind of begin to feel maybe some of the rumblings of what could definitely be persecution here soon for Christians, it might come to your mind already, is it worth it? Is this worth dying for, the Christian faith? Is it worth dying for the name of Jesus Christ? The answer is yes. But as those doubts arise, let's look to John and see what he did. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. 
verses 18 through 23. When doubts arise, where did John go? He went to the source. He went to the only place that had the answer. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He went to the source, Jesus Christ. Isn't this fascinating to consider? This is the man that he tells us. He says, I was told the one that the dove descends upon, the spirit descends upon, that is the Christ. Visual. He knew it. He says, that is the Lamb of God. He proclaimed it. He was definitely a believer, but as time got difficult, if the pressures begin, began to mount, he needed to know one last time, is this worth dying for and he went to Jesus Christ and Jesus isn't rebuking him he's referring back to the scriptures all that Jesus is doing in his ministry is the fulfillment of the prophecies that were written beforehand that John would have known so as things begin to mount up as he was probably very sure that his life was limited he was probably literally in a pit in prison, as it life was seeming desperate, he went to the source, and the source says, Take heart, John. I am he. I am the Christ. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Doubts may arise. But there is a source for which we go as the people of God. The word of God reminds us. It reminds us that it is worth it. The life that we live in Christ is worth it. Paul says, for all those who would desire to live a godly life will face persecution. It will come. But it's worth taking a stand for Jesus Christ. John is a wonderful example of that. You see, the example of turning greatness upside down. The definition of great in our world is defined by celebrity status, political power, athletic ability, financial uh, stability, talents, a mind. All that is turned upside down in the kingdom of God. Those who would be great must be last of all. And we see that in the life of John. 
After John's disciples go and tell uh, John what Jesus told them, Jesus begins to speak to the crowd. Hey, who did you go out to see? What did you think you were going to see? He has something that he says about John that is just fascinating. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Quoting scripture, he says, I tell you, Jesus' word, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Man, to have those words put to your name by Jesus Christ, what an honor. He goes on, he says, yet, I tell, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What he's getting at, it's not just the essence of the man, it's his function that makes him great. He had the privilege as the last prophet of the Old Testament to prepare the people for the Christ. What an honor. But still, in the fact that he was the greatest of born of women, what a title. Given by God in flesh. But everything's flipped upside down. You would think a man of such honor and reputation in the eyes of Christ would have a high seat amongst the religious leaders. Would be respected and revered by others. That he would be able to live to a good old age, enjoy life and the things of life. That was never his calling. It was always self-denial, humility, redirecting others to Christ. It's actually quite sad to think of his final days. Herodias never forgave John for what he did. Herod kind of became amused by him, fearful of him because of what he thought the people might do to him. And after a very tragic instance, a very foul way of having a man killed, his head was lopped off, placed on a platter. That's it. That's, that's his life. Born in a miraculous way, ends with his head on a platter brought to a woman. Things are flipped upside down for the kingdom of God. The world hates the people of God. We should never be surprised by the opposition we receive, but we should stand faithful to the end. Lastly, I want to look at the passage that Brother Rick mentioned and read, the joy and humility. Really, before Jesus began his ministry, there was a little bit of conflict between John's disciples and others. They were a little concerned because people were going over to Jesus and his disciples and being baptized. And they came up to John and they said to him, they said, uh, Rabbi, he who is with you, this is in John 3. Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands here 
stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Listen to John. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. The model for the Christian life. Our lives should be marked by that verse. Jesus Christ constantly increasing, us decreasing. So is that the case? Believer? It demands all your life. You don't just elevate Jesus in one part of your life. They, he consumes all of your life. Your finances, your careers, your family, your entertainment, your neighbors, your friends. In all of your life, he should be increasing. You should be decreasing. Dying to self. Is that true of your life today? I hope we look to John the Baptist as that example. Take comfort in the fact that he's a man just like you and me. That he had struggles, doubts, and fears just like you and me. But at the end of the day, his life was marked by elevating Christ. Humbling himself. And giving us a wonderful model of how we should live as believers in Jesus Christ. I want you to know if you're in this room and you are trying to piece all this together, I want you to know, listen, a life well spent for the Lord Jesus Christ is the most blessed life that you could have. And that all begins with salvation. Sin is an issue, and it's not just an issue that will eventually resolve itself. You must go to the one that solves the problem. And gives a solution. And that's Jesus Christ. So I hope if you are yet in doubt. Not knowing whether you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Look to Christ. As John would say. Repent. Turn. Believe in Jesus Christ today. Believer. Elevate him. In all of your life. Let's pray.